0: We love running. It's something that we've done all our lives and a great way for when we feel stressed or feel tense or feel a little down, going out for a run we find can really replenish our soul. Yeah, when we travel, we that's what we end up doing. We end up, first thing we get off a plane or a car or whatever, always want to go for a run like a pair of dogs. Just makes us feel good. Releases chemicals in our brain. Anyway, back a few years ago, a friend gave us a pair of shoes, said these shoes are going to change your life, lads. And they have done. They're barefoot shoes. They're called Vivo Barefoot. We've worn nothing but them for the last six years. And I found them to be wonderful. They really have enhanced my foot strength. And subsequent research has shown that by wearing Vivo Barefoot shoes over in a matter of months, you'll increase your foot strength by 60%. The muscles in it actually build. There's a wide toe box so you can spread your your toes out, which will encourage more grip and you're less likely to develop um, bunions. And they have minimal soles. So that means two mil soles. So super, super low. And which means that you've got, it really helps with your alignment. You know, if you think about it, your feet are the foundation of your body, your feet, your knees sit on top of that, then your hips, then your spine, and then your head. So it all starts with your foundation with your feet. So when your feet are flat on the ground, it really, really helps. I've certainly found in myself, my feet are stronger. My alignment is better. I used to get pains in my knees from yoga, from doing the lotus position. I don't get them anymore. Anecdotal, I know, but... uh, we, we are absolute believers in them. They're a B Corp company. They're all about sustainability and doing their best. And we've partnered with them to give you a 15% discount. So if you're interested in trying Barefoot shoes this year, we'd highly recommend you try in Vivo. If, if you, you use the code HAPPYPAIR15 at checkout, one really cool part is that there's no risk. They're offering a 100 day return policy. So you can order them, avail your 15% discount and then 100 days later go, no, nah, not for me and return them. No questions asked. So and they have full range for kids, for adults, for going to the office, for we wear the hiking boots on the farm all the time. They're great. They're like worker boots and we run in them. We ran 50 kilometers there in their trail running shoes there a few months ago. And uh, yeah, they're great anyway. So happy pair 15 is the code to use at checkout if you ever want to check them out. VivoBarefoot.com Hello and welcome to the Happy Bear podcast. We're Dave and Steve. We've been eating plant-based for 20 years, started a vegetable shop, and it's we've gone on this crazy adventure of creating a business to change the world for the better. I'm Steve. I'm Dave. And this podcast is really about exploring health, happiness, meaning, and having conversations with people that know more and together we can collectively understand this thing called life and how to have a better life.
1: And I'm Sean. Hi, Sean. <laughs> Hi, Dave. How Hi, are you? Sean. Hi, Steve. Going to cut straight into the... When we were talking to Jerry Hussey, he mentioned the book, The Five Regrets of the Dying. And I was thinking the epiphany. I was like, what would you do with the five um, the five epiphanies of the injured? The
0: five epip- epiphanies because of the injured.
1: you know, Ray, I train Ray yeah. every day. And he's got two bulging discs in his lower back. And his physio was like, you can train, but preferably things that aren't putting pressure on your back. So me and Ray train pull-ups. Every day. Now. <laughs> wow, is that not putting pressure on your back? No, because you're hanging. Oh wow! does okay. so gravity
0: not put pressure pressure on the back?
1: Wow, less than kind of lifting okay, weights. Yeah, so yeah, he yeah. so he can do, he can run on sand. Don't know why That's he can do kind of single leg kind of squats or the He can do pull ups and dips. And we've been running on an elliptical because it's less impact than running. Wow. And my I've I've kind of I'm sore between my shoulders at the moment and you kind of have to you have to have to readjust just bits of your life and I know you have a sore foot yeah I've had a sore and and it's adjusting how you're living your life so I think the the five epiphanies of the injured is nearly like well I, th- I feel like it's nearly a good topic. Uh, I'd love to have injured people on the podcast and like <laughs> have them on. How did you change your life? Because how did you change your life? Well, well your even I noticed.
0: So, so we had this conversation with Jerry Hussey, performance psychologist, and and the conversation came up. He talked about the five regrets of the dying, and he also talked about this thing called the sal. We talked about through the conversation, we came up with this idea of the salvation of slow. That we're all moving so fast, and sometimes life gives you these things to slow you down. And I think my foot has been an amazing like my foot's been sore for three months, I'd say now, and it's been like I've been running bits in it and I haven't helped it by running it but like I've committed running to the it or running, on, running it. on it and it's actually slowing me down which is really really nice it is like it's hard because I get this pepper of energy and I need to express it somehow and I've always gone oh I need to go for a run like I need to run this en- this Energy, this twitch out of me, and now I can't do it. And it's kind of, it's just interesting. I've got to sit with it and a bit more reflection, and and I'm actually enjoying it. And I'm hoping that it gets better, obviously, because I want to go running soon. But um, yeah. And the same thing we get in the shop, like like, and you could expand the the epiphanies of the injured to also sick people, because every day in the week, you, well, we used to get a lot more, less so now because there's so much more information in the internet. But we used to get every day of the week someone would come in, oh geez, I've got I've got such and such a illness, and I'm looking to eat healthier. What do I do? And and they go oh I'm really sorry and they go no it's wonderful like it's, it's actually been the greatest blessing because it slows me down and remi- reminds me of what's important and I think illnesses disease and these type of things just bring more awareness if we let them I think they can. to what's I think important. They can. Yeah they can do they can, yeah. they can bring that kind of balance the opportunity to find a better homeostasis a place where you're prioritizing what's important to you as opposed to prioritizing what you think you should be doing
1: Yeah like I, I, I've warmed up and cool down after every workout since my back hurt. And I I never, like if I was perfectly fine, I'd just get up, go for a run. Just get up, go for weights. Straight in. But even like we, meet myself and Ray do Pilates on Monday nights now. Good he stretches you. in his office on lunch. Wow, is his back getting better? It's getting there. He's managing just it. Just kind anyway. of have to build the muscle around the disc to take the kind of weight off it. Yeah,
0: because I'm, I'm actually doing, I've got uh, resistant bands. I find these elastic bands and I have to do relis- resistant stretching on my toes. Yeah. So I am doing toga every day. I've committed <laughs> to doing 10 minutes toga. Actually, I'm going to do it now. Um, yeah, really interesting.
1: But uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I I, I I thought that might be, because it, it gives you, a, it just stops people in their tracks, basically. Well, it's the
0: same way any ailment helps you, or injury helps you appreciate, like, uh, you know, say you have a sore shoulder, the next day when it suddenly starts working, you're like, oh,
1: God, to have a body that works.
0: What a you know, it helps you appreciate things that we take for granted, which I think that's one of the the challenges of life is to appreciate all these little magical bits that we have that are working for us
1: and speaking of lifestyle changes yeah, this our guest today
0: yeah our guest today is like he's he's one of the few people that stitches so many aspects of life together in such a cohesive informative manner George Monbiot he is a regular columnist in The Guardian and he's author of a number of best-selling books his recent book is called Regenesis, Regenesis which he, he reads more than 5,000 research papers for it and he's a food writer one of my favourite stats which I which I'd heard quote from his book was that a kilo of steak? If you were to compare that to beans, it'd be like a kilo of beans that travels around the world one thousand times to have the same carbon emission. Yeah. So he he threads the whole aspect of the food system and like currently we're in a state of climate crisis. You know we've all heard these various terms and you kind of go okay yeah, and it's you know it's 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 a low grade. Um, Despair, really, in a lot of people's lives, and it's a very public issue, and it's it's getting more and more front but, and center. But it's something that most people find it hard to talk about. And yeah. It's something that's pushed to the side. And George can thread so many aspects together. I haven't come across anyone that can knit them together beautifully in terms of the food system, in terms of the planetary issues, in terms of the environmental situation, and in terms of solutions that we can take as individuals. Because it does come round. This podcast does get into the solutions. It does get into what we can do for agency for ourselves, what we can do collectively. And really, he is he is a treat. He is a treat for you. So
1: people get a bit prickly when they're told something they don't want to do as well and they can get resistance and they might spite themselves in the future. But if you can approach this with an open mind and, uh, and try and take something from it, and I think he speaks in a beautiful,
0: non-judgmental way. It's just spoken as this is the way it is. Yeah, it's very matter-of-fact. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. What a legend. What a hero. What yeah. a super cool dude. So without further ado, we give you the wonderful George Mombio. Okay, well, well, maybe the first place to start has to be the same way in Regenesis. You started with the soil. You started, you, you kind of used the picking of the fruit in your old in the commons where 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 that place where you used to live in oxford was and then you kind of took that as a gate gateway to go into the soil and i guess we've got a farm we've got a four acre farm all regenerative, all regenerative, and I remember there last a couple of weeks ago, Chris, who's our head farmer, he he was showing me he had put a cocktail of seeds across uh, a bed that he wanted to kind of just let kind of go fallow for uh, for for a cover crop, a cover crop, and he put a cocktail of seeds on it, and there was a whole cocktail of seeds, and he said, "What happens with this is it's going to pull forward different microbes, bring like bring different microbes to the surface. So when I plant it next next uh, in spring, I've got a control. I want to see. I reckon this one here because I've given it a cover crop and I brought forward different microbes. It's going to yield." better foods and he was playing around with it and I just wondered there's a huge correlation between the human gut the human gut because obviously you know I think I I read through your work that the plant's guts are on the outside and it's in the soil yeah and we're currently in a state of where the soil is in a state of dysbiosis so that means out of balance and humans are in a complete state of dysbiosis at large you know because the the global western diet and stress and whatnot and I just wondered, where does the food system link into this? There's a massive question to Big jump off with. Go yeah. light and fluffy Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just, I respect you too much to give in an easy one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is. I mean, dysbiosis
2: is is the right term. So yeah, we, it's a term which comes out of medicine. You know, and it's about our guts being out of balance, but it's actually so appropriate for the home state of the planet um, and particularly for the state of the soil. Because as you say, the analogies are, are really powerful. When a plant root, a baby rootlet, pushes into a lump of soil, it, it, it does a series of extraordinary things which we're only just beginning to understand. And the first of them is to start talking. And this is the amazing thing that plants can talk. And they talk in a very sophisticated chemical language. They, they, they release these very complicated chemicals called exudates from the root whose purpose is to send a signal to the particular microbes they want to talk to. And in any lump of soil, there might be thousands of different species of microbes, most of which are asleep. They they, they stay in a state of dormancy most of the time. And it doesn't want to talk to all of them. Uh, there might be pathogens in, uh, among them. There might be uh, sort of parasites among them, all sorts of microbes it doesn't want to, to, to deal with. So instead, it sends a specific signal which only one species can hear. In some cases, only one genotype of a species can hear. That's how precise it is. And and that signal is basically saying, wake up. And the particular microbe which receives it says, oh, what, who, me? And and at that point, the plant then floods them with sugars. So amazingly, between about 11% and 40% of all the sugars which plants make through photosynthesis they release through their roots to feed the microbes immediately around the root hair, and those microbes then, using the sugars, multiply very, very quickly. You know, they, they sort of wake up and they start producing all all these baby microbes, so budding off and off and off and off, until you form around the root one of the densest microbial communities on earth, and 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 that, as you say creates around the root a kind of external gut for the plant. And it has these functions which are uncannily similar to the functions of the human gut. So, for instance, um, it, it exchanges the sugars it receives from the plant for nutrients which it extracts from the soil and feeds to the plant. And again, the, the, the microbes in our guts, they, they help to extract nutrients from our food and pass them to us in return for the sugars and other things that we feed them. They create a defensive ring around the root hair fighting off pathogens, which is again exactly what the microbes in our gut uh, do. And they help to fire up the plant's immune system when it needs that help. And again, exactly the same in the gut. And what makes this really uncanny is that out of the thousand or so phyla of bacteria, the major groups of bacteria, there are four that dominate in the human gut. And there are four that dominate in this zone around the root hair. And they're the same four so we got this sort of spooky comparison between these two systems completely different large creatures plants and humans for instance but almost identical relationships with the small creatures and and it seems particularly with creatures which are pre-adapted to cooperate with large with large ones so these four groups of bacteria you know they're they're specialists in getting along with things a lot bigger than themselves and so they form symbiotic relationships with them similar to the relationships that you might get in a coral reef for instance and all this is going on under the ground but of course we're completely screwing this system over with our terrible treatment of the soil but also and you're quite right to make the analogy you know with our terrible disastrous engagement with earth systems as a as a whole and with the stripping out of the resilience of the global food system, which is beginning to look like the global financial system in the approach to 2008 with potentially catastrophic consequences, which we're
0: just not attending to. Mm. Yeah, amazing. How fragile is our food system? So we we have a cafe and we have about 60 products, all plant-based, that we distribute around Ireland. And I guess we're aware of how... Small changes, basil fluctuations. Like during, we can get basil in Ireland about eight months of the year, and we're looking at growing. We use about a quarter tonne a week, and during kind of times when there's kind of storms around the Mediterranean, we can't get basil. The price fluctuates. We might struggle to get it. It, it, it's tentative. It's delicate. It's, and I just wonder over the. I've heard you talk about it previously where it's gone to a much more just-in-time production model in terms of how we manage the logistics of our global food system. And I just wonder, how delicate and fragile is it? Because it's something that we take for granted. I can go down to the supermarket and not only is there food there, it's the exact, I can get chickpeas, I can get a typical variety of chickpeas. And COVID, can, and COVID was the first time that we saw that you heard these rumours that, well, there's only ever a weak supply in a country. Like, you know, if if things go wrong in Ireland or the UK or whatever... There's no good. We know food in a week. So people started stockpiling food and toilet rolls and whatever. And I guess it's it's just to, to open up that conversation about the food, the global food system. And has it gone too efficient and too machine like and not local and human enough?
2: Well, th- these are all, all the right questions and we take it for granted, don't, don't we? You know, you go to the shops, the, the, the shelves are going to be full of stuff. And I I don't know about in Ireland, but just recently we've been going to the shops and all the shelves where there's meant to be tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, aubergines, courgettes, nothing, nothing, just completely empty. And that's okay, exacerbated by Brexit, you know, and um, the immediate trigger has been cold weather in Spain and Morocco. But what we've seen since the 1970s now is an escalating series of shocks to the global food system. This is well-documented in, in the scientific literature, where the shocks have just been getting worse and worse and worse. And in a healthy system, we're talking about complex systems here. The soil is a complex system. Uh, every ecosystem is, the atmosphere is, the oceans are, the human brain is, human body is, human society, everything important to us in the whole world is a complex system. And they operate according to to, to certain rules. And a healthy system is self-regulating um it's uh, through billions of random interactions it has these weird self-sustaining self-regulating properties which keep it within an equilibrium state but if you undermine the resilience of that system if you uh, strip away some of the elements which make the system strong those self-regulating features cease to function and shocks can travel easily across the system and even worse Once it gets to a certain point, the self-regulating features become self-amplifying features. Instead, they multiply the shocks and make them worse and worse. And then the system gradually starts to approach a critical threshold. And if it passes that threshold, it doesn't respond in a slow, steady way. It just collapses from one equilibrium state to another. Now that very nearly happened with the financial system in 2008. And and it was because of the disastrous strategies of the big banks. For a start, they became too big. Too big to fail was the phrase we often heard then. They all started doing the same thing at the same time, in the same way, which meant you stripped the diversity out of the system. You'd stripped the asynchronicity out of the system. In other words, they were doing it all in lockstep, which meant that anything going wrong was going to affect everyone all at the same time in the same way they had created a, a sort of global standard for trading where you could just shift your currencies around you 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 there's no the national barriers have been taken down so they they broke down what's called the modularity of the system which is another crucial element of resilience they had made everything hyper efficient which you know from their own individual perspective made sense but collectively reduced the redundancy of the system which is another Of those crucial elements. They um, lobbied against effective regulation, and that meant that they stripped out the circuit breakers from the system, which is like the fifth element of sustainability. And then by ensuring that everyone got integrated into this global economy, they stripped away the backup systems, which is the sixth element of of sustainability within a system. So you can see those six elements, uh, diversity, asynchronicity, redundancy, modularity, circuit breakers and backup systems, all of which are absolutely crucial for making sure that system can continue to function. If you get rid of them for what seemed like entirely logical corporate reasons, um, everybody pursuing their own interests, then the system as a whole becomes weaker and becomes prone to collapse. Now, in 2008, Governments panicked, you know, they had like a few hours literally before the whole system went down and they bailed it out with trillions of dollars. And they were able to do that because they could just create money out of thin air. That's what governments do. And they did this thing called quantitative easing and these bailouts, they just produce money. They bailed out the banks with future money. But if the food system starts going down, you can't bail it out with future food. So it's a far more dangerous situation even than the very, very close shave we came to with the possibility of financial collapse in 2008.
0: Wow. So how delicate is it? Like, are we carrying kind of a weak stock? Like, I know, like, say, with the cafe or with that, you'll typically Mm. carry, you know, a weak stock of of dried goods because, you know, you can get a delivery next week. Like, how delicate or or kind of fragile is it? Are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? Like, it's obviously a... A very um, hypothetical question. Hypothetical. Hopefully, well, maybe not hypothetical, who knows? Well, I mean,
2: this, these are all crucial questions which everyone should be asking, but hardly anyone is. You know, people mm. say, oh, look, we've got a shock caused by um, cold weather in Morocco and Spain. No, oh, we've got a shock caused by COVID. We've got a shock caused by Ukraine. You know, you see these individual shocks, but we don't recognise that actually there's a much deeper underlying trend. And since 2014, 2015 rather, we've seen... Uh, the rate of global chronic hunger rising. And that seems to be because of the increasing shocks to the system. So, how fragile is it? Well, the problem with any complex system is you don't know where the tipping point is until you've passed it. You know, it, it's by the time you realize where that tipping point is, it, it is it's too late. Um, it's curtains. It's all already been and gone. But we can see some pretty worrying signs which show that. You know, all the the warning signals that we saw with the financial sector are here in the food sector. So one is enormous corporations. To give one example, four companies now control 90% of the global grain trade. That is a really dangerous situation. And those same four companies have have not only been um, doing mergers and acquisitions horizontally, capturing their rivals, they've also been integrating vertically so, they're they're invested in seeds, in farm chemicals, in processing and packing facilities, um, in in wholesaling, in retail. I mean, right the way across the board. You know, those those companies are just swallowing up everyone and trying to sort of control the food system from farm to fork. And then at the same time, you know, they've been ins- ensuring that you've got absolutely standardised ways of producing and dealing with this grain everywhere you are on Earth. So you've got the same seeds being planted, which is very dangerous, you know, because the genetic diversity has greatly shrunk. And so if you've got a major crop disease like the UG99 stem fungus, which is now raging across Africa and Asia with great damage to wheat crops, um, you know, because there's so such low genetic diversity, there's almost nothing to stop the spread of that pathogen. Um, and then um, is all produced with the same chemicals, with the same techniques. So if there's say a run on on NPK, you know there's fertilizer mix. which relies very heavily on nitrates from Russia, phosphates from Western Sahara, whatever it might be. You 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 suddenly everyone's got the same problem, all at the same time. Then. They insist, you know, all the the container terminals had to be identical. It's the same size, shipping containers put on the same ships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And and we see this great intensification of trade. There's been a far massively greater trading volume going on. Countries have polarised into super importers and super exporters, which adds to vulnerability in the system. And a great deal of that trade then passes through these very critical choke points. And one choke point, for instance, is the Suez Canal. And we saw in um, 2021 how um, the Suez Canal got blocked by that big container ship, the Ever Given, which got blown across it and got wedged in. Luckily, um, against expectations, they were able to free it in a few days. If they had had to unload it in order to float it off, it would have taken weeks. And had that um, problem coincided with the effective closure of the turkish straits another critical choke point by russia's invasion of ukraine the following year the food chain would simply have snapped for hundreds of millions of people if those two things had happened together it would have been an absolute disaster shelves would have cleared across large parts of the middle east of, of north africa southern europe there would have been really really massive impacts and people people might have starved you know it, it, it would have been a really big problem and there's a series of critical choke points. We've got the Panama Canal, we've got
0: the Straits of Malacca, we've got the Baba, B- um, Baba Mandab, we've got the Straits of Hormuz. George, does it seem like one of the, the solutions to this is that if we, you know, going by Pareto principle, the 80 20 rule, is the solution is this that typically we need to go back to 80% of our food is locally grown. And it's grown within kind of the 100 kilometers of where we live as an ideal. I'm a dreamer. an idealist, a but, total ideal. But, but But just even ourselves yeah. with us starting our four acre farm, it connects <laughs> you to the land you know yeah. what's in season, you know how it's grown, really? your hand is in the soil, you're actually yeah. being more like a human being than a human doing. But so like all the- that,
2: all that is true and valuable, you know, and and yeah, you know, like you, I love growing stuff, and I love that sense of connection, but we must also recognise that our mathematical constraints here, and one of them is that, you know, whether we like it or not, and we, we tend to, to be very good at pushing this out of our mind, we have become totally dependent on food from a long way away. And that's partly simply because of the distribution of the population versus the distribution of of farmland. So many of of the world's cities just don't have a big enough hinterland to produce crops um, for all the people who, who live in those cities. And so all of us now, just about worldwide, are dependent on transport from outside of that hinterland. There was a um, paper in Nature Food which looked at uh, how many of the world's people could be fed with with grain from um, grown within 100 kilometres of where they live, and it's only 22% of, of the world's people. Um, and, and on average, I think for wheat, the um, average um, uh, minimum distance over which we um, can be fed is over 2,000 kilometres. Um, and so, you know, we're drawing in grain from the the US Midwest, from the Canadian prairies, from the Brazilian interior, from from the Russian steppes, from the Ukrainian Chernobyl. And and that leaves us vulnerable. But it's it's not an easy problem to fix because we, we just don't in many countries have enough land to produce everything we need ourselves. And. What we can produce, we, we 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 should produce, but only if it's not environmentally disastrous. So, for instance, you know, you look at tomatoes, which is which is currently a a, a hot issue in the UK. You know, tomatoes are this valuable commodity. People are almost coming to blows to get the last tomatoes. Um, and there's two things have happened at once. One, we've had the cold weather in Spain and Morocco. But two, because of the price of gas. Fewer people are growing them in heated greenhouses here in the UK. Now you'd say, oh, we, you know, we should be growing our tomatoes in the UK. Uh, not if it means growing them in heated greenhouses because that requires a massive amount of fossil fuels. And unless you've got purely waste heat and a few people are using waste heat, which is reasonable. But if if you're looking at actually burning fossil gas to produce your tomatoes, you're much, much better off in environmental terms trucking those tomatoes in from Spain, where they're grown using natural sunlight. Um, it, it's simply because the emissions from the transport and the, all the other environmental impacts are smaller than the impacts caused by using that huge amount of, of, of fossil fuel to, to grow at home in an unfavorable climate. You know, during the summer, yeah, absolutely it makes sense to grow tomatoes here, but if we insist on having tomatoes in the winter doesn't make sense.
0: Totally. You have so much information. Uh, I, I'd love to bring the conversation back up because obviously uh, we're very familiar with your work and I adore it. And I think for anyone listening, I'd love just to touch on the current issues of land use. I think we have sure. to get into that. And, yeah. and what kind of the the, the the modern diet is like, is the food system one of the main... Like, I think we need to just bring it back up before we go back into other things. Yeah. And we need to talk about land use. We need to talk about... Um, you know, the effect of climate change and what the current food system is doing on it. And I'd love if you could kind of give a little summary in terms of that and then we can go off into loads of different other ways. Yeah, so, OK,
2: um, it's something which people find really hard to swallow, but food production is the worst thing we've ever done to the planet. Wow. And obviously, you know, we've got to produce food. You know, we you've got to argue against producing food, but the way we do it, is phenomenally damaging. So food production is the number one cause of deforestation this century, the number one cause of habitat destruction, the number one cause of wildlife loss, the number one cause of species extinction, the number one cause of soil degradation, the number one cause of freshwater use, um, and by far and away, the number one cause of land use, which is critically important. I'll come on to this in a moment. But it's also Um, One of the biggest causes of water pollution in the UK, for instance, there's more water pollution from farming than any other industry. Um, It is the number one top cause of water pollution, even worse than the horrible privatized water companies dumping raw sewage in our rivers, and also a very major cause of air pollution, which is something we almost completely forget about. But we've created a sort of Moral force field around farming, you know we don't criticize it um we, we don't apply the same standards that we would to any any other industry because it's so old, it's so deeply rooted in our, it's
0: our lives in our
2: psyches, yeah, and we you and know, you can't deny that we need it, but you know there's farming and farming. there are some forms of farming which are just much much more damaging than others, and the most damaging farming is livestock farming simply because of the enormous resources that it needs so there's two kinds of livestock farming. You know, we can divide it quite neatly into two. One is the
0: intensive factory farming, right? And everybody hates this. And yet they... And so just just, just for anyone listen. so livestock, uh, you mean growing animals to eat? Meat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And is, yeah, fish, so... is fish considered as livestock?
2: Well, so so that that's a whole other issue, but that equally horrendous. You know, it is... So industrial fishing is the biggest cause of the destruction of marine ecosystems. So, so that is, you know, that is horrendous as well. But I'm going to concentrate on talking about the things we grow, including, you know, we do fish in aquaculture. You know, like like salmon farming and stuff. That is livestock production. Uh, but we're also talking about chickens, pigs, cows, sheep. Those are the principal species that that that, that we're using. Um, in, in 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 that sort of order, you know, chickens most, then pigs, then cows, then sheep, um, and so, and we're looking at when it comes to intensive production, you know, packing them into factories, these vast steel barns, which hardly anyone, except for the people who work on the farm, has ever been in. You know, these are about the the most that is is like is like GCHQ or, or 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 the CIA headquarters or something. You you don't go in the triangle. There. Area areas, forty-one, areas, or whatever it's called. Yeah, you, 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 are completely excluded from these places because if we, if we did see where our food was coming from, the you know the chickens or the pigs, for instance, yeah, you, know, you would stop eating it tomorrow. It's it's terrible. It, it's really horrible. I, I, as a teenager, I worked on an intensive pig farm, and every day, there were two thoughts went round my head. The first was, this isn't what they told me farming was about and the second was, why is this legal? If we treated our cats and dogs the same way as we treat pigs and chickens, we would literally be sent to prison. And yet it's completely normal. It's just been totally normalized. We're killing 76 billion animals a year to feed ourselves. So as well as um, having terrible welfare impacts, this also has terrible environmental impacts because um, now, uh, the, all these animals have to be fed on grain. This is, it, incidentally, where the great majority of our animal products come from, is from these huge steel factories, and people don't want to know this. There was a survey in the United States where over 95% of people eat meat, and it found that 47% of people wanted to ban slaughterhouses. <laughs> we wow. just live in a total state of self-deception about this issue, but also about the environmental impacts. And are the majority, about,
0: like the majority of meat comes from slaughterhouses, Probably com- eighty percent of meat from, comes from factory yeah. farms. Sorry, yeah, is, yeah, is yeah, the great majority guy?
2: comes from factory farms, and it all passes through slaughterhouses. So, so it's oh, like course, sort of, yeah. just this sort of total, total self-deception, you yeah. know. And and, and you know, we don't want to know. We're still sort of old MacDonald, you know. That that's I mean, you know, there, there's two two absolutely catastrophic um um so sort of forces of deception bearing upon them one of them is old mcdonald had a farm and the other one is ronald mcdonald so you know, any, any mcdonald's you don't want to go there but you know this sort of all this propaganda which is centuries old about you know what what livestock farming is about and it's just bullshit so anyway you've got a huge amount of grain being grown in places like brazil you know, where soya farming is just trashing the Sahara ecosystem, trashing the gran Chaco in Argentina and Paraguay trashing the southern Amazonian rainforest on a horrendous scale almost entirely to produce feed for animals. Um, that's then transported to to countries like Caron, UK and Ireland. Um, and then it's passed through those thousands and thousands of animals packed into these great big steel sheds. Now, a lot of the nutrients in that feed is then pooped out in their manure. And that manure has to go somewhere. And it's low value, high volume. So it's going to go somewhere locally. You can't afford to truck it across the country to where arable farmers might want it. So people spread it on the land and they call it fertilizing. But actually there's far too much because of the number of animals. There's far too much for the land to absorb. The soil and the plants and it can't make use of those nutrients. So a huge portion of it runs off goes into the nearest river, kills the river. River flows into the sea, you get dead zones at sea. So it's got these massive knock-on impacts, which we're just not thinking about. So that's intensive farming, and that's bad enough. So people say, well, I don't want to buy the products of factory farming. That's horrible. I hate factory farming. I like... The kind of farming where you've got cows grazing in the meadow or sheep grazing on the hills. Organic local beef.
0: I only eat organic (laughs) (laughs) grass-fed beef.
2: Pasture-fed, grass-fed, that's right. This is the worst of all farm products. You cannot eat a worse product than organic pasture-fed beef or lamb. And that is because of the enormous amount of a crucial resource which is required to produce that, which is called land. Now, this should be one of the top of our environmental concerns. It should be right at the top. The amount of land we use is absolutely critical to our engagement with with the living world. And yet the only context in which we think about land use is when it comes to urban sprawl, right? And we should be exercised about urban sprawl. Urban sprawl is a pox on the planet. You know, it's it's really bad. It's bad for cities. It's bad for the countryside. But all the urban area on Earth... All the homes, all the businesses, all the infrastructure put together amounts to 1% of the earth's land area, right? Farming occupies 38% of the earth's land area. Uh, by far and away, the biggest use of of, of land that humans do much of the rest, incidentally, is desert. It's ice cap. It's um, r- rocky mountains. Um, uh, some is forest, not nearly enough, some is protected area, not nearly enough. But basically, farming is occupying pretty well all the land it can. So how does that break down? Okay, 12% of the Earth's land surface is under crops. And nearly half of that land area producing crops is producing crops to feed to animals, to feed to those poor animals packed into those huge factories, um, the chickens and the pigs and the dairy cows and the rest of it.
0: So, So, so just to put that that into context, so you've got 1% is all of the human urban environments and the human ecosystem. Everything we've ever built. Everything we've ever built is 1%. Six percent is just to grow grain to feed our animals that we like to eat. Uh,
2: Yeah, so nearly 6%. So so it's about, yeah, it's it's five to 6%. And six to 7% is grain and fruit and veg and other crops grown directly to feed us, right? That's all. Just. 6 or 7% of the land surface. So we're, hang on a moment, we're missing 26%. I said that farming occupies 38%, right? And crops occupy 12%. What's the 26%? What's that? All of that is pasture. Nearly all of it for cattle or sheep. And And what this means is that cattle and sheep farming occupy this massively disproportionate proportion of the planet to produce a tiny amount of our food supply. I mean, it's really a minuscule amount of the the food we eat in terms of calories, in terms of protein, is produced by grazed cattle, sheep, and, and, and the other animals that we might put out to pasture. And yet, what they do is to inflict a massive ecological opportunity cost and carbon opportunity cost, because every hectare of land that we use for our own purposes, is a hectare that can't be occupied by wild ecosystems. And the great majority of the world species depend on wild ecosystems for their survival. They can't survive on those pastures. But moreover, the wild ecosystems displaced by that 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 ranching, that that pasturing, um, be they rainforests, be they natural grasslands, um, be they savannas, um, be they wet drained wetlands, whatever they might be. Are always richer in carbon than 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 the pastures that have replaced them, and so by by keeping this massive uh, global herd, well, it's actually not all that many, you know, the, the cattle and sheep, but across a
0: huge amount of land, we are displacing the ecosystems which could stop Earth systems. So it's essentially the opportunity cost of, because we're using 28% of land, 26. 26% of the land to grow cattle on, We could that could be forest or that could be wetlands, which would absorb a lot exactly. more carbon and give a lot more stability to the whole Earth's natural systems, which exactly. support life. So essentially, the food system is the greatest cause of, of, of impact on the current climate situation, which is compounding, further compounding and stressing our current food system and putting That's it in a right. state of possible brink... That's right. And when people say, oh, the problem is intensive
2: animal farming, you say, no, 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 no. The problem is animal farming. Intensive is bad. Extensive is even worse in environmental terms. Extensive by definition means using more land to produce a given amount of food. Okay. So there was a study in the United States saying, what if we were to do what all the celebrity chefs are telling us to do, which is to eat pasture-fed beef, You know, stop eating this horrible corn-fed beef in these intensive feedlots, but eat pasture-fed beef instead. And it found out that if you were to do that, the amount of land required to produce cattle would rise by 270%. And so if the United States were to, to make that move, it would have to fell all its forests, drain all its wetlands, water all its deserts, degazette all its national parks, demolish
0: all its cities, and it would still be importing most of its beef from Brazil. Oh my wow. word! That's a great stat. That's a great <laughs> piece That's of research. Frightening. Okay, grants. This is a topic that, well, I guess we grew up in Ireland. Where, yes, we grew up in Ireland. We still live here. We do, correct? Uh, but where there was the was Common the agricultural, agricultural Policy, policy? where it was all, where it was CAP? Where it was it, now, I'm ignorant to this, but I, to the best of my knowledge, this is back in mm-hmm. you know early nineties. There was the government was funding farmers to get into growing animals because they needed more beef because this was one of our prime economic activities. Is grants a significant part of the cause? Are we are we indirectly paying taxes to governments and then governments are using it to, in a way that is not intentionally, but is having this massive ramification and ultimately kind of leading to this climate crisis? Yeah, it, it's it's one of the
2: most perverse forms of public spending on earth, in, in, which is farm subsidies. We're talking about half a trillion dollars a year worldwide being spent on farm subsidies and almost none of them have any environmental benefits. Nearly all of them are directly environmentally harmful. Um, The majority of those subsidies almost certainly being spent on livestock farming. It's really perverse. And within the European Union, it's actually worse than anywhere else on Earth. Now, look, I'm a staunch remainder, right? I'm massively hated Brexit, and I greatly regret that Brexit has happened, but there is one good thing, and only one good thing (laughs) that has come out of Brexit, which is getting out of the European Union's common agricultural policy, which is an absolute catastrophe. And it appears to be unreformable, unreformable, because every five years the EU says, well, yes, we recognise there are some problems with the common agricultural policy, so we're going to have a new round, and we're going to consider applications, and we're going to think again about it. And they come out they make it even worse than it was before, because they're completely nobbled by these huge agricultural nobby groups operating at the European level. And so what the Common Agricultural Policy does, and it's by far the biggest budgetary item, incidentally, in, in, in the European Union. So everyone in the EU is paying loads of money out of their pockets for this, is it pays people by the hectare, which means the biggest landowners get the most money, you know, and you don't have to be a European, you know, you can be a, 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 a Texas mining baron, you can you can be in a, a a Saudi oil sheik, you can be a Russian oligarch. You know, as long as you own land within Europe, you qualify for these subsidies. So they're taking it out of our pockets, putting it into the pockets of some of the richest people in the world. And the condition of having that money for pillar one of the common agricultural policy is that your land is kept in agricultural condition. In most jurisdictions, you don't actually have to produce anything from that land. You don't have to produce a single ear of wheat, a single lamb chop, a single pint of milk. It just has to look as if it's agricultural land. That's what agricultural condition means. It has to look as if farming can take place there. And what that means is bare. If the land contains what the rules call permanent ineligible features... A red ring is put around those permanent ineligible features, and they don't qualify for subsidies. What is a permanent ineligible feature? Wildlife habitats. Um, and we've seen right across the European Union, as a result of this perverse incentive, hundreds of thousands of hectares of prime wildlife habitat being destroyed solely in order to qualify for Pillar 1 of European farm subsidies. It's it's just utter madness. It's one of the most destructive
0: forces on earth today and it's entirely driven by state funding. And it's it's the same in terms of like how I understand it as like we grow vegetables but I don't think there's that much grants for vegetable growers. It seems like most of the grants, certainly in Ireland, go towards dairy production or meat production, which as you've kind of said, the the livestock production is one of the biggest causes of the, the current climate situation. Not and and also a huge contributor to human health issues. ill health yeah, issues, yeah. Totally, so totally. totally. Health, yeah.
2: So, so, you're not going to get anything for your four hectares because it's paid by the hectare. I mean, it would not be worth your while to fill in the forms, you'd be spending more of your time and money filling in the forms than any tiny amount of money you got from farm subsidies for four hectares. But if you we had four 400 acres, hectares, ours is four
0: acres, oh, four seems acres, smaller. sorry, well, even it seems less, smaller.
2: Yeah. but if you had 400 acres or 4,000 acres, then it's really worthwhile, and of course. Yeah, you know, on the whole, the biggest farmers are the ones who've got livestock because they're very extensive, you know, and they occupy huge areas of, 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 um, uh, of, of mountain, hillside, uplands, you know, and and that's where you know it's really lucrative to be farming. Subsidies now, I don't know about in Ireland, but but here in Britain, in the UK, we get. Uh, endless programs on on the telly. You know, BBC particularly showing sort of, oh, these these rugged sheep farmers herding their sheep around. I mean, if BBC were any keener on sheep, it would be illegal. (laughs) Right? But but the And and what they never show you in these programs is how these people actually make their money. You know, they take their sheep to market. Oh, I've got a good price on this one. Oh, yes, that's great. Oh, yes, no, I like the body on this one, so give me a good price. All of that is loss-making. Every sheep you sell loses you £13 on average, Uh, and and you make a loss. And the average English hill farm makes minus £16,600 a year, right? The, The economic activity is subsidy harvesting. And it's because you've got this large area of land which you're keeping in in agricultural condition, because you've got sheep grazing it to make sure that no saplings come up, no no scrub happens, no, no no wildlife can recover there, you get paid by the hectare for that land. So the actual business of the farm is sitting at the computer filling out subsidy forms. But somehow that hasn't caught on as a romantic activity.
0: Jeez. Wow. Frightening when you look beneath the veil. I think it's human activity we've become quite perverse yeah, in so many different it, ways. It's 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 kind of a bit in the state of like busy fools, like us as humans, us being the ants on the planet, and <laughs> we're kind of like we're all busy, you know, existing, but slowly, indirectly, our actions are ultimately leading us towards a p- possible. You know, I've I've heard people call it the possible sixth extinction event. Mm.
2: Yeah, no, I mean it. it it's I mean I, I think probable on the trajectory we're on, it, it is probable you know through this just perversity of all the all the, the pressures which are bearing above the planet but you know of all the I, I will I will answer okay, yeah, yeah, no. of all these pressures right the number one and number two and I don't know if they're in that order or the other way around are fossil fuels and livestock production and so if if we want to protect and restore the living planet there are two principal things we need to do leave fossil fuels in the ground and stop farming animals.
0: Brilliant. Wow. Okay, I've got two. I think we need to start the, 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 the journey, the hero's journey, the the heroes. Heroes. journey we need solution. Hope. We need hope, yeah. George. <laughs> yeah. First thing to start with, for anyone listening who kind of goes, right, I agree with everything you're saying, George, what should people largely be eating? So, first of all,
2: you know, the, the biggest shift that you can make in your own life, you know, and I'm always saying to people, you know, don't think of yourself as a consumer, think of yourself as a citizen. It's by getting together that, and making political change that we, we we're powerful. However, there are one or two things you can do in terms of your own consumption, which really count. One of them is the way you travel, but the biggest shift of all is to switch to a plant-based diet that has by far and away the biggest impact that you can have. And the reason for this is that animal farming and animal consumption, obviously, which is driving animal farming, and we in the rich nations, are um, big big drivers of it. I mean, in the UK, we consume on average eighty two kilograms of, of meat per person per year, which is roughly our body weight. In the US, they consume one hundred and eighteen kilograms per person per year, which is and no, I won't go there. Um, the, <laughs> and um, and 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 you know that is this huge driver because those livestock interact with just about every earth system. They're hammering just about every ecosystem, just about they're hammering atmosphere rivers, oceans, everything, you know, all the way across. Water, fresh water, soil, the, the, the lot, every habitat, you know, just being hit by livestock production. So, so getting out of that and into a plant-based diet, that number one, before you do anything else, you've made a big shift in your environmental impact.
0: So, so, so that statistic, there was a statistic which we've been quoting, it was out of an Oxford study which said in 2018 the single biggest thing you could do as an individual for to, for, to, for the climate, for the benefit of the planet was to shift to a plant-based diet and not, you know, it's not about electric cars and planes, obviously right. all those things help, not yeah, flying yeah. as much and whatnot, but they said the most agency you have in terms of your diet. Yeah. Okay, that hope seems George, to be we need hope, we need <laughs> hope. Yeah. I, I just wanted to, is that correct? Is that correct? Yeah, no, no, no that is, is correct. So, so for instance, if you
2: look at transport, you know, we, we, we're slightly obsessed with transport we should be concerned about it. But livestock farming alone, let alone any other farming, livestock farming alone has greater greenhouse gas emissions than all global transport.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. okay, hope the future. How can we solutions. turn this around, George? What are the solutions? How can we suddenly kind of go from the, the state with which we're approaching our food system now to kind of creating a new utopia, sustainable system so that our grandchildren, our great-great-great grandchildren can just have a wonderful utopian existence. So the first step of that is, so what are some possible exciting solutions and then we've got to talk about how do we, or is there a potential pathway to get to them? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, okay, so,
2: let's look for a moment at grain because grain is really you know we're all great at talking about fruit and vegetables right because we we all tend to grow a few fruit and vegetables none of us grow grain I don't suppose you guys are growing grain right yeah people we have have a
0: sourdough bakery and it's something that I've you know we have a little mill and it's something that I've aspired to do is to grow even a small but we were Charles Dowding back last year. And he was growing a small bit of rye, which he'd mill himself and, and make, make his, his own rye. sourdough. He and was just, very rare though. I it's love It's
2: really it. tough, In it? It's tough and labour intensive to grow your own grain really, really hard. You know, you can see why it's all oh, become he was mechanized. growing
0: about a, me- a metre square. That was right. the extent yeah. of his okay. arable pasture. <laughs> sure. So, so you know, the, the one of the mistakes we
2: make, we sort of think about the vegetables we go and think, oh, that's the way to feed the world. But actually, you know, you've got to crack grain. And if you don't, get grain growing right you're not going to solve any of these problems so I, I you know while there are some really fascinating new ways of growing fruit and veg which I'm also very interested in talk about in the book, I'd like to emphasize the grain because so almost all the grain we grow right is is from annual crops right crops which live and die within within one year and large areas covered by annual crops are, are rare in nature and generally only happen in the wake of a disaster. Right? landslide, volcanic eruption, big fire, that sort of thing, kills off everything, that creates bare ground, and that's what annual plants like to colonize, and they colonize it very rapidly. They're specialists in colonizing bare ground. And then the perennial, the long-lived plants come in and drown them out, and um, and and it sort of closes up again. Um, so in order to grow our annual crops, we have to create a disaster every year. Right? We have to clear the land. We have to kill everything that's living there either by spraying it or by plowing it. and then we have to keep killing. As the little seedlings come up, we have to protect them against all the competition, wiping out other plants, wiping out the bugs which might eat them, fertilizing them, watering them is really intensive. So what if instead, we could grow perennial grain crops? Um, crops which only need to be planted every few years but you can harvest them every year. You can
0: just keep harvesting from the, the same plant. The idea it sounds like the it's greatest like hack. It's like, it's like a hack because it's almost like, <laughs> like a fruit tree is the way fruit is grown but grain is grown annually and that's I the know. way we're all taught. So the idea that's of right. a grain that gives you a crop every year and, and you just st- do very little it's like... And to give no. a context for anyone listening, by grain, we mean wheat, barley, rye, rice. Do you include rice as barley? Oh, yeah, no, no. So yeah, all yeah. the
2: cereal crops, and yeah. you mentioned some of them, but also oh, sh- um, included in grain is oil seeds. So the things like, yeah, rapeseed, sunflower, whatever it is, yeah. Um, but also included in that is, is legumes. So beans, pulses, peas, you know, wow. lentils, all, all that is grain.
0: So all these could be, be planted once and they could last for five or six years. You get yeah, a crop no, every yeah, year. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so
2: so this has been a dream of scientists, right, for a century. And it's finally happening. At last, it is happening. It's been driven by a small group in in the US called the Land Institute, uh, working with other groups around the world. And they've been scanning thousands and thousands of candidate species, uh, which could be turned into perennial species or crossed with existing annual crops. And they've already had one total success, full commercialization. Which is a variety of short grain rice. So they basically crossed short grain rice with a wild perennial relative and it worked. And they've now got this crop, which um, has been in the ground for several years. It still produces uh, yields as high or higher than the annual r- rice that replaced it. It's being grown across thousands of hectares. They did it in conjunction with Yunnan University in China grown across thousands of hectares in southern China. And the farmers are desperate for the seed. They, they're they really, really keen for this because, number one, it massively reduces soil erosion because by ploughing the paddy fields every year, you, you're massively degrading the soil. But if you don't only have to plough them every several years, the soil can recover. You don't do nearly so much damage. It massively reduces the costs of farming because you're not using as as much water, as much pesticide, as much um, herbicide, as much fertilizer, all these damaging inputs. But also, they're really short of labor in rural China because the young people have gone to the cities. And it means much less labor. You're not having to plant every year. And, wow. and yet they're harvesting again and again. And I've eaten the um, the, the the rice which comes um, from these nice. plants. is exactly, it is just short grain rice. It's the same stuff, but it's from a perennial plant. Wow. And now they've got a whole load of
0: other plants like this in the pipeline. It's really exciting. So this is kind of like high tech, kind of sophistication, kind of crossbreeding, allowing kind of a perennial mm. wild grass to be mixed mm. with kind of a uh, an edible annual. Varietal, annual. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And it's and and you know the the breakthroughs. It hasn't been all that fancy. The technology required, you know, the, the, I mean, selective breeding is a much more sophisticated thing than it used to be. But it's basically. In that case, you know, that was a simple cross. In other cases, they've just stumbled across wild species which have got great potential. And some of them, you know, seem very promising and then they go nowhere. Others don't seem very promising and suddenly poof, they're able to multiply up the amount of grain they're producing just through a few generations of, of selective breeding. And so there's a whole load of different potential crops in the pipeline now. Well, I've eaten another one called Kernza, which um, is... It comes from a plant which is—it's just a grass really. It's a deep-rooted perennial grass. Very, very thick, deep roots go down several meters. Um, so you, they need less water. They need less
0: fertilizer than the straggly little tiny. More roots. mineral rich as well because they're gone deeper. And I, say, say that again. And more—they're going to be more mineral rich because yeah, the yeah, deeper that's right, roots, that's yeah. right. All of that, and they're
2: likely to be more resilient to pests. Um, They don't get swamped by weeds because they're big, thick, bushy plants. They're also more resilient to environmental shocks. So, for instance, the Land Institute has got this perennial sunflower. It was growing it alongside a block of annual sunflowers, got hit by a big drought, completely wiped out the annual sunflowers, and the perennials just sailed straight through it. (laughs) So so I've been eating flour from um, this Crop they produced called Kanza, which is a totally different species. It's a species you know, humans haven't been eating before, but it's a grass species, just like wheat or barley or anything. And it produces this fantastic flower. It's, it's rich and nutty tasting. It's a really lovely flower, and I've made I've made bread with it, I've made wraps with it, I've made digestive biscuits with it, I've made savoury crackers with it, and they're all just lovely. I mean, it's got such a good flavour the yields are still quite low so they're doing some work on that to 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 raise the yields but you know as a product it is it couldn't be better
0: and do you okay, see this so- rolling out? Do you see this kind of hitting mass proliferation? Like, will there be much pushback? People going, like, would that that wouldn't be classified. That's just simple crossbreeding. That's not genetic modification. That's just simply pairings. That's incredible. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I mean, I don't think we'll get much... Pre- I mean, the, the question is, you know, whether farmers can adapt it into their systems, you know, whether they can make good use of it. And there are issues like, you know, could these perennial plants become weeds, which cause us a problem when we try to switch back to annual plants? For instance, you know, there's questions like this, which are perfectly legitimate questions. So, there's some issues that need to be resolved. With the rice, there don't seem to be any problems. You know, it's just like, yeah, it just fits straight into the farming system. Might not be the same for rural crops, but, you know, you, there's just more work need, needs doing other.
0: Incredible. It's an amazing one, and uh, so so we're very keen fermenters. You know, we have been for a long time with a sourdough bakery, and we make we make batch bat, huge batches of kimchi and sauerkraut and whatnot. And we so, roast coffee. And we roast coffee and, and steams into chocolate. So lots of kind of fermented fermented products. And I know a solution which you are a big believer in is precision fermentation. Which which people go fermentation. Well, well, how is precision fermentation? could potentially feed the world. How could, yeah, could yeah. you tell so, us about that? So so for
2: 12,000 years or so, we've been we've been concentrating on selecting and breeding and growing multicellular organisms, like right? plants and animals. We've pretty well pushed them to the absolute limit. When it comes to chickens, we push them way beyond the limit, you know, into just appalling welfare health issues. Um, but we've scarcely begun to explore the potential of, of microbes. And microbes are incredible. I mean, they need just so much
0: less than plants and animals need in order so when to you grow say, them So when you, when you say microbes because obviously you think of yeah. mammals okay chickens yeah got it meat you know Correct. vegetables yeah got it but microbes it's a harder yeah. thing for people to get their head around like yeah. we can't see a microbe no. a microbe is a, is a, is is nothing it's in the air like it's Yeah and we're scared of microbes too because
2: oh some, some microbes are germs yeah sure you know Um, Some fish are poisonous to eat, but that doesn't mean that all fish are poisonous. Yeah, it's a very, very small proportion of of germs out of millions of microbial species. And a huge amount of them have food potential. So you've been using certain microbes, principally yeast... Um, with kimchi, I think you're using bacteria, aren't you? With sourdough, I think you're using bacteria to some extent as well, and you're using it in a really interesting way. But it's 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 sort of traditional fermentation, whereas precision fermentation is really about homing in on a particular microbe and multiplying that deliberately as as a sort of end in itself. You know, you're not using it to turn um, wheat into bread, to turn flour into bread. You are using it. To, to, to make more of itself. And and it turns out to be super efficient as a way of creating protein-rich, fat-rich foods. So um, there was one study showing that um, if you were to um, make uh, um, a protein from um, bacteria feeding on methanol, and there's some bacteria which can just eat methanol, there's others which can just eat hydrogen. Um, you would need 1,700 times less land than the most effective way of making protein currently, which is growing soya. And that means you'd need 132,000 times less land than you do for making beef. Depending on the energy technologies you're using, including the energy required, you could grow all the world's protein in an area the size of Greater London. Yeah, know, do think? the average oh Irish county w- you probably produce all the world's protein, and I'm not suggesting we do it like that. It should be distributed. There's all sorts of reasons for having a broken up system, but it's 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 got enormous potential to save
0: land, to save water, to save fertilizer. But it kind of takes a huge shift in people's heads because they go precision fermentation. Does that mean that I just get into the supermarket and I buy a tub of microbes and I just <laughs> eat protein rich microbes, or what? Like, what does this look like? Is this the same as we use? Textured vegetable protein or soya protein or things like this. So, so I mean, no more than we go to the supermarket and buy a live pig, right, and take it home to butcher it. Um, the so the,
2: these these microbes, just like your pig or your chicken, you know, are the are the starting point of the products which you might want at, at, at the end, and, and they've got this a far greater potential to replace animal products than plants have. And the, you know, the problem with plant proteins is that there are low concentrations in the plant. They, they're very different to animal proteins, and they're tangled up with all these plant secondary metabolites, which are generally very strong tasting. So you need a lot of processing to turn plants into animal-like things. You need far less processing to turn microbes into animal-like products. Um, and so there's enormous potential for replacing dairy, for replacing meat, for replacing fish, for replacing eggs, just making much, much better substitutes than you can make out of plants. But... I think we'll quickly start going beyond that and start saying, well, actually, there's all sorts of other things you can do with that, which we can't even imagine at the moment anymore than the first farmers to capture a wild cow were thinking about Camembert.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, then, is this will this be economical? Like, will it end up being kind of cause, a, cause affordable was, for people? Even I was saying to Steve yesterday, I was saying this pre- precision fermentation thing, it's incredible. Like, how do we get into Like, this is like the Wild West. Like, people, I don't, I, like, we're in the food industry, but I'd never heard of this before. And I'm like, do we just start like a chamber and start breeding certain microbes? <laughs> like, I have no idea how it works. Like, as a food, someone in the food game. Well, so uh, basically, let the pioneers sort it
2: out and make their mistakes and lose you know some of them will lose money some of them will succeed you know it's, it's, it's always at the beginning and before the small guys can start using it you know you need the big money to fail and fail and fail and then succeed and some of them are now succeeding some of them are doing fine and and some of them aren't that's always going to be the case with any new technology but once they've cracked it the cost then comes rocketing down and 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 very quickly it'll start to undercut animal products because you just need far less of everything you need far less land far less water far less fertilizer far less everything to to produce these products and 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 it's basically modular it's like digital production so you know you're going to have that S curve you know where it sort of bumps along the bottom and then slowly rises to reach about 10% uptake taking them it goes straight up to universal uptake. You know, just like with phones, just like with light bulbs, just like with fridges, you know, all the major technologies we've adopted, that's what's happened.
0: Wow, microbe farming. It's just, it's such a thing to get your head around. It's amazing. Okay, so there's there's possible, okay, so we've got annual crops and we've got... Perennial crops. Per- perennial crops and we've got <laughs> microbial farming. They're about two incredible, interesting things. And how, I, I guess the biggest thing is, and this was a conversation which we had on the farm on Saturday. We were planting trees, planting trees around the, the outside of the farm. And th- there's a lovely Frenchman, man, Mathieu, and he was chatting to us and he was saying, and he's he's got a number of kids and he was saying, well, there's lots of young people now in France and they're not having kids because they have a despair about the future. And I just wondered, like, I can understand his predicament and I can understand a lot of people's predicament with that perspective. And I kind of gone, OK, we've talked about two possible future solutions and I'm sure you've got another array of them. And you go through a lot of them in your, in your book, Regenesis. I'm going like, what are some of the stepping stones that we can get there to avoid the potential catastrophes of mass starvations because the food system is so under stress and it's got so hyper efficient that it doesn't have any slack in the system? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. So talking of kids, I've got one minute before i got to leave and pick up my daughter from school. Oh, but there we are. Um, Great. Yeah.
0: So Great. I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and
2: get this in fast. Um, yeah. And look, we, we need to just change the system. And the first thing to do is to understand the system. And scarcely anybody does. People just aren't bothering to get to grips with complex systems and how they operate. And we've got to understand it in the same way that we've now begun to understand the financial system and where that went wrong. We're seeing the food system go wrong in the same way. And this is where it's so important that we are citizens, not just consumers, that we actually step forward and put get together, mobilize together, put pressure on governments and say, this food system is crocked. If you don't act on it now, it's going to go down and it's going to take us all with it. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's an environmental imperative, but it's also a humanitarian imperative because We are all stuffed unless we sort this food system out. Well, actually, we won't be stuffed. We'll be starving, but they'll be stuffed because we're starving. We're in really big trouble now and we've got to cooperate,
0: come together in huge numbers and demand political change. In terms of coming together, I'm in Exeter on April the 13th. Do you want to have lunch? Oh, it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, I'd love to. I'm an Exeter. George, you're in Tottenham. I'd George, love you're to spend amazing. It. You really are. We're two total fanboys. Love your work. Your book, Regenesis, is incredible. It's won a number of awards. Anyone listening who wants to learn more, do check and it out. And dig phenomenal. into George. has got amazing videos on YouTube. The one in the Yellowstone Park about the wolves and the reintroduction is just mind-boggling. And... Oh, I just I, I will I'll send you an email I'm there I'm doing a talk with Dr. Alan Desmond next Exeter oh, on I'm the 13th fantastic no, I know yeah he really is so, yeah. so I'll send you an email like I'm there I've booked flights so I'm I'm into Exeter on the 13th so I'll fantastic. send you something I'd love be to lovely. be in person well look it's yeah.
2: been a total pleasure to talk to you both thanks guys it's been lovely
0: thanks Brent. George thanks, thanks George, George you're a star bye bye as someone who's worked in the food industry for almost 20 years now it's rare you meet someone that can tread so many different aspects together so coherently that my brain feels partly scrambled because I've just been exposed to so much information but at the same time I feel inspired I feel ignited I feel like He treads so many pieces together of the puzzle as in the planetary situation the food system linking it to the 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 way the financial system was in 2008 um, and just really back down to plausible solutions of go eat more plant based or eat exclusively plant based if you can because as he said in terms of land use Animal agriculture, livestock, whether intensive or pasture is really is the number one, one or, or two um, cause of climate crisis and the current climate situation so in terms of healing the food system I guess the number one agency we have is eating more plant based foods I really, the really topic is. of rather than being a consumer be a citizen yeah and I'm fascinated with um, precision fermentation oh, yeah, yeah. I don't Looking know how to learn to more about that but um, perennial crops yeah do check out George his his latest book is Regenerous which Regener- Regenesis, Regenesis. which is fascinating it's he's won a number of awards so it's an incredible book for anyone who's interested in the food system and likes that He it's phenomenal and I'll read yeah and he's got a column in The Guardian which he writes in regularly as well so um, do check him out and thank you so much for your time we really really appreciate it and I guess this 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 was such a treat for us because um, it Food just trended dream. so many aspects that we're so interested in together so yeah hope you enjoyed it and thanks for being on this podcast journey with us we really really appreciate you cheers bye bye bye, bye, bye wishing bye. you a good day ahead bye